The Paradise Center for the Arts is a vibrant cultural and artistic gathering spot in historic downtown Faribault. The Paradise is committed to offering high-quality visual and performing art opportunities for Faribault and our region. Regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the Upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Good morning, this is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Thank you so much for listening to the show that creates, we create stories, I guess, but I haven't said it that way before, but we're also celebrating all things creating and lots of stories. And of course, we're going to tune our imaginations together. Today, I want to start with a story about when I lived in Des Moines, Iowa. One of my favorite shops in Valley Junction was the Lanyap, and this store sold happy things, beautiful gifts, artsy pieces, painted furnishings, cheery words, unique treasures, and things you didn't know you needed, but you knew that when you brought them home, they carried great joy with them. It was a place to go for gifts and good company, and I felt so much joy in that store. Every purchase that came from that store came with a little something extra, and that's where the word lanyap comes from, and it is spelled L-A-G-N-I-A-P-P-E, which I'm sure I pronounced many times incorrectly when I first started going there. Langniapi is how I used to say it. That's not how you say it, (laughs) and they never said anything because they're just so joyful. Lanyap is how you say it, and it's something that's given as a bonus or an extra gift. And it's a Cajun French-inspired noun that means a little extra. It's often used to describe something good, and I'm not going to say this word right either. It's it's the southern New Orleans, but it's N-O-L-A, so I'm sure there's a way that they nola, no it, I'm not going to try because that southern accent is just as hard as speaking French for me or uh, some other other language. And But it's a call for receiving anything extra or receiving something for free. So I've been trying to sort of adopt this attitude, live in those places that have that joy and look for those opportunities to make that joy. That's when life is sweetest. You feel like there's a cherry on top of the day. And every now and then the stars line up and an opportunity to receive one of those great gifts in life is presented to you. And sometimes it's hard to believe that these possibilities are out there for you, but I think they are for everyone, these little gifts everywhere. It's how you see the world that helps us see these sparkles. So I was supposed to be out of town today, but then the trip was canceled. And I happened to meet up with our guest today over the last week and were able to make today's interview possible. I'd say it's a little bit of lanyap kismet, sparkle, luck, good fortune, something. So I'm very excited to be able to bring to you today this guest. Uh, I've wanted to have him on the show for a long time. So I'm get ready to learn lots and remember that the universe is wonderful. And that's why we're here today. It's a great and wonderful place. So today on Arts Any Radio, I'm going to welcome Matt Wheeling to discuss his string story, The Art of Bowmaking, and preview his upcoming CMAC, the South 
Eastern Minnesota Arts Council Grant Capstone event. You can get more details and look at some images at Matt Wheeling, but it's W-E-H-L-I-N-G dot com. And return on the mics and welcome Matt to the Art Zany Radio. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, this it's is such a thrill. Uh-huh. And uh, an even easier web address for that is finebows.com. Oh, even easier. Yeah, okay. Like F-I-N-E bows dot com. That's a really easy one to find. And they're both linked to the same. Yep. Oh, perfect. So folks can can look up finebows.com. I'll add that to the posting then so people know that. And you have brought some uh, tell and tell because we can't really show (laughs) on the radio, which I'm very excited. Um, For the folks that don't know Matt, he's a violin bow maker and uh, bow makers for other string instruments as well. Violin, viola, cello those three mm-hmm. and uh he's going to be giving a presentation on the history of the modern violin bow and the potential integration of modern tools into this traditional art uh, at cannon valley makers on railroad street in dundas on sunday the 22nd of may from 4 to 6 p.m that's 2022 and we'll talk a little bit more about that you know do you I, i'm wondering if when you were a kid like that you thought this might be the place that you would end up, that you would be making bows. Do you, was there an interest in string instruments when you were younger? None. None. So it's a complete <laughs> uh-huh. uh, surprising turn for you. Well, I mean, when it depends how young you're going to talk about. I started making guitars in the garage at, I think, in seventh grade. It might have been eighth grade. Well, let's talk about that, because mm-hmm. that doesn't seem like a thing. I've had middle schoolers, and that uh-huh. wasn't a thing that they were thinking about. How did that begin that that you could one even imagine that you could do that and two that you know you were uh able to think that that was possible at that young age yeah it it was it was a different world back then paula (laughs) and um you just couldn't buy a good guitar for under say five hundred dollars which at that time that would have been a lot of money you know i'm in my late 50s so that would have been more you know that'd be like a fifteen hundred two thousand dollars Nowadays, you can buy a pretty good banger guitar if you're in seventh or eighth grade for a hundred dollars today uh two fifty okay you know and um so what I wanted was not available, and I got very interested in and I'd been doing woodworking for a while. We had a neighbor who had a full wood shop who was very um enthusiastic and very helpful in a lot of ways and then my dad did some woodworking here and there, and it just sort of seemed like something I could do. I can't even imagine. My dad did a lot of woodworking, too. Never did anything. Uh, it was more practical. Oh, you need a, a cage for the snake you found, or, you know, we need some bookshelves, or uh, some of, uh, you know, just, he could he could make anything that, you know, a doghouse, uh, all of those ty- kinds of things, but not not that kind of... I bet he could have. I, I'm sure uh, he could have, yeah. but he never, you know, it was always uh, for functional things. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a pretty incredible uh, thing to think about. When, and, and the tools you must have had access to, because that does require some really fine to get those curves. Less than you might imagine, mm. you know. Yeah. So uh, th- there's a really, really good high-end acoustic guitar maker, uh, Jim Olson, who says, it's not that hard to make a guitar. It's really difficult to be a guitar maker. <laughs> you know, to really get your your skills and your craft and your dedication up to the level um, that's going to make it to where you have something that someone else is going to want to pay money for. 
and and for, to pay you for what's worth your time, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's, it's a long investment. And mm-hmm. and but I think also interesting about your story is that you your first profession wasn't bow making. You be- began as a chemist. Theoretically. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was a theoretical chemist. Oh, theoretically. Yeah, and literally huh? theoretically. Well, I wasn't a theoretical chemist. I was a practicing chemist. But um, a, kind of a long route through college, taking a few more years than people might expect for college. And then I went to Ireland for about a year and a half, two years to play music. And coming back, it took me about a year to find a job in the chemistry field. And uh, I was at that job seven years. And after about three or four years, I realized how much I hated it. And, and uh, like a lot of, I mean, like a lot of situations that people fall into, you, I had the, I had the personality that I had to become to go to work. I had to hide so much of who I was, in order to fit into a, a building with four hundred other people. Mm. And I think that was the thing I particularly didn't like about it. And so it wasn't the work that you were doing, but maybe. Just the culture of of the that workplace. Yeah, a little bit like that. Um, a lot of the skills that I have in terms of making a bow, in terms of the the meticulousness that you have to have to be good at chemistry, you have to have that. To be good at being able to just wash your glassware is so important in chemistry, and um, you know that really plays. You know that became instead of oh, this is so different and. It isn't so different, and there's there's often thought by people, oh, there's this wall between science and art. Uh, I worked for a very short time, for about six months, in a very high-end uh, biomedical research institute in England, and um, those people were incredibly creative. I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more parallels about, uh, and, and science has a lot more imagination than you know, a lot of people give it credit for that you have to really, in order to solve problems, you really have to kind of, you know, wonder, well, what if and how about and what happens when I, you know, so there's, there's, there are a lot of overlaps. But then how does someone from that background decide, you know, that next transition you made to thinking about string instruments and bows? Tell me a little bit about that process. Well, as I had that job, I was playing music all the time, and uh, I have played fiddle. I don't play that very much anymore. I'm I'm mainly on mandolin as my main instrument, and I. Um, but I picked up my violin case. It was not latched. the The violin came tumbling out. The <gasps> neck came off. Oh how and, oh <laughs> yeah. And so it's like whoa, what's going on here? And I uh, the I was living with a woman at the time. I was getting. Uh, I, she worked at the fantastic bookstore Hungry Mind. Mm. The, the late great and uh someone else working there her husband was a violin maker who was someone that i'd been going to for quite a while and so i was getting to know him socially as well as professionally a little bit and he said uh you this is a really expensive repair but if you come in on saturdays i'll show you how to do the repair and from that i i was realizing and also i was being helped out on this realization by that particular girlfriend how much i hated my job and how I uh, needed to get out of there. And um, John, the the violin maker's name was John Waddle. He's up in St. Paul. And he said, I will help you understand what to do on the entrance exam to the Violin Making School of America so that you'll just ace it. And as I was starting to do that, he said, you know, there's this, other, there's this sort of minor 
world off in its own corner in the violin world that I think you might do really well in, and that's the world of bows. And so that got me going. There was, there was, there still are courses for amateurs for just starting to learn how to do more maintenance on bows. And so I took a couple of those, took a couple of those again the next year, did this and that. And so I started getting interested in either 1990 or 1991, probably 91, 92. And at some point I thought, to really get good at this, I have to go to France. Because France is the center of the world for bow making. Yeah, I, I didn't know that until I read a little bit about your background. And that is in, intriguing. Do we normally think of violins as... Italy, right? Yep. And there you go. but but then bows, how did they become the masters of that craft? Well, I mean, when you think of violins, you think of Italy, everyone knows the name Antonio Stradivari. Right. So there's a Stradivari equivalent of the bow who was about 100 years after Stradivari and he was in Paris because at that time Paris was a real crossroads of culture, arts, arts, all arts, like writing and, and mm -hmm. music and everything, yeah. So he had access to really good musicians. As his star was on the rise, really good musicians would come to him and say, well, I'm having a little trouble with this thing here. Why can't this bow do this? And they, he was able to work with them and solve some problems. And along the way, he reinvented, he invented the modern bow. A lot of people think, oh, Stradivari, he must have done all this. Stradivari took a form and brought it to its highest level. Uh, the, the man's name in France was Francois Tort. Tort invented. He, he didn't just take a form and tweak some things and really bring it to its highest level. He imagined the entire thing. So uh, the bow was not like it was before he came along. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so would people notice the difference then when they were, uh, well, I guess you didn't talk to those people, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I would imagine that kind of transformed the sound that the, the violin could make? Very much so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that part is really fascinating because I did not. Um, I think a lot of people take the bow for granted when mm -hmm. they're they're you know listening to a concert or watching. You know, they watch the fingering and are amazed at what they can do or are in tune with the sound. Mm -hmm. But none of that's possible if you don't have that triangle between player, bow, and instrument. That's a really good way to describe it as triangle of all three things going on there. And mm -hmm. if you change any part of that triangle, you're changing everything. Mm hmm. And that that makes a big difference. And I don't think that uh, I, I so I'm hoping today I can learn a little bit more about what makes the bow and what makes the, the music sound good. And so you were talking a little bit about the, the works and the classes that you take, but you eventually ended up in France, which is like an extraordinary opportunity, something that how did you get connected to be able to study with some of these people who were some of the greatest you know, names in bow making? Uh, I'm good at keeping in touch with people. And the first class I took, that sort of class for amateurs, it was a week long. There was a young guy there who was sort of the, how do we pronounce, how do, how do we pronounce the word S-C-I-O-N? Oh, I'm, <laughs> do you want me to give it a try? I, 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 people say Skyon, but it's not. It's, I think it's Sion. Sion uh, is yeah. how I, yeah, I think so. But I don't know uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So he was the scion of a uh, American violin making family who was there to work with this major level guy and or after after I had met him at the amateur classes I just called him about 4 years later and I said what's what have you been doing he goes I just got back from a year working with Benoît Roland it was incredible you have to call him 
So a little bit of I was, um, I hate to say connections, but it's also making yourself available to those connections. That's the key, mm. isn't it? Being yeah. and you kind of you know have a, a habit then of connecting and keeping those connections alive. But you're always on the lookout. I think mm-hmm. that it's both what you do and kind of what you set yourself up for. But you mm-hmm. got to be ready for those and and willing to to hear those opportunities. Right. So I'd actually contacted a few people who who had sort of the same bow lineage as he had. And without any success, but I, I sent him a letter, uh, and then I didn't hear from him and maybe sent him a fax. <laughs> <laughs> I and, remember those. And then I, I one day I, I, I got up the courage and I called him, and he said, oh, yes, when are you coming? It's like, holy crap. You <laughs> he <know>? said yes. <laughs> well, you know what I did was I said, well, I need to kind of line up a few things. Um, can I get back to you? And uh, I got off the phone. I called a, a very good bowmaker in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Lee Guthrie, who's been doing it a few years before me. And I called him. I said, wow, you know, I've got this. I don't know what's going on. And he said, if Benoit Roland said to me, when are you coming? I would say, give me 10 minutes to call the airline. <laughs> so, so before he yeah. changes or, or, or whatever, just take like, it the opportunity. It, you know? yeah. So I, I got back to him and he said, well, I want to, you know, before I really make you an offer, I want you to come over. I need to meet you, make sure that things are, are good. Uh, so I um, went over and we planned out a, a timeline of it was going to work for him about a year from then. That gave me a year to save up a whole bunch of money. Mm-hmm. Once, once I was motivated, I could save. Mm. And, um, and I was, I quit my job. Um, I rented out my, I had a very small house in St. Paul, which I rented out. And I, I initially, I thought I was going for about a year. I worked with him nine months. And through that, I was able to develop a connection with, through Irish music, developed a connection with another bow maker. And I was with him for four years. So you were in France that whole time? For five years, yeah. Oh, what mm-hmm. a glorious thing. Mm-hmm. Wow, I can't mm-hmm. imagine. <laughs> and I, one thing I learned ab- about that trip was that before you went, was there something about the tools that you had to, you couldn't just go by planers or some of the other tools that you use. He wanted you to make tools? Yes, it wasn't just, oh, I want you, here's your list of things. I, I needed to actually make hand planes exactly like his. And I think I think there were two things going on there. I'm not exactly sure. I think one of them was that if you're if you're teaching someone, they have the exact same tools as you. That's one. It's easier, and also it's one. You're not modifying what you're telling somebody in order to sort of fit with that. And also, they would not have been adequate tools. And then the other thing is, I think it might have been a little bit of a test. Is this guy actually dedicated enough that he's going to do what I think is important to do? Mm. That, that, that sound, yeah. I bet, bet it's a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. And luckily at the time um, that the place where I was doing chemistry, uh, it was not really a, it was not a place that, it wasn't an industrial chemistry firm. It was a place that made uh, blood infusion catheters. Mm. And we had a really good machine shop there with three people. And so they helped me through those processes. I mean, other than one step of doing a bunch of welding, I made the entire planes. And that's something that I, you know, how, I guess I didn't realize that you could even make one, right? Uh-huh. Or, and what would be the differences between the one that you would pick up off the shelf and the one that he wanted you to make? You'll have to come to my talk at the Makerspace <laughs> on the 22nd of, of May here. Because um, 
without having the two of them here in my hands, it's very, but it, they're just so, it, and it, I wish, I mean, even if I have them here, we're on the radio, but, um, you know, if you go by a Stanley plane, it's a block plane, it's something, it's a, it's a completely different form. In particular, the wood that is used for a bow, you're technically not planing the wood, because planing sort of gets under the grains and lifts it up, and this is actually using it as a scraper. The angle of the blade is much, much higher. You've got a little bit of a burr on the blade, so you're you're not um, you're not cutting so much as sort of I, I I don't even know the process exactly. Other than doing this, I'm not much of a woodworker. <laughs> so, I, so I I yeah I've seen what the plane does in those little peels that they mm-hmm. kind of reveal. So when you plane with your tool, what what is um, what trails behind? What kind of a shaving, which I guess is one way. Of it saying. does look like a shaving, but technically it's not a shaving. Okay. You know, no. And so. now, so now we're getting into the real, uh, you know, the the story of the wood, right? I mean, it, and you mentioned that it's, uh, and, and I think there was a very particular kind of wood that's used for making bows. Right. So that's called Pernambuco. Okay, I'm glad you said that. I have the word, but I wasn't sure uh-huh. how to pronounce it. Yeah. If you look at so this wood comes from Brazil. If you think of a map of Brazil, it's got kind of its nose sticking out over toward Europe. That is the little state of Pernambuco. Mm. And for whatever reason, as this wood got imported into Europe, I, I assume that almost everything came out of that port because it was the closest point to Europe. And so they just started, it's probably all labeled, oh, here's wood from Pernambuco. So they called it Pernambuco. <laughs> um, but the the tree itself is the national tree of Brazil. So, and in fact, the word Brazil comes from the word for this tree. So it's uh, it's a little bit like the American eagle to Brazil in many ways. And so are almost all bows made of this wood or? Anything good. Anything good. So you could make it out of maple or oak. No. no. Okay. Tell me what what goes on when you select that wood. What is the quality that it has that makes it uh, perfect for making bows? Uh, Well, in particular, you want to have a grain that's really, really straight and is going to run through the entire length of the the bow, if possible. For you at home, I'm handing Paula (laughs) a board right now. Okay. You can feel that. You can see. Oh, it's it's half. I mean, it it has a lot of um, density. It's heavy. Yeah. It's heavier than water. Right. Uh, So those don't float. Those sink. These, Uh, I would imagine, because it's mm -hmm. it's much. uh, not like a a piece of oak that you would pick up, Uh and and the grains are gorgeous. I mean, you can really. Um, see, this one has a little bit of a curve here, right? It does, yes. And mm-hmm. so they're not all, but most of them are very, very uh, straight is the word I'm coming up with. Folks, I wish I could describe the color for you. Mm-hmm. Is this stained or is this raw? It is not stained. In fact, it itself is a dye. The main reason that this wood was exported from Brazil to back to Europe is that it was used as a dye. And I'm uh, matching it with the table that we have here, which mm-hmm. is a cherry, and it's uh, not as red, but there's there's a really um, lovely uh, orange red. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, uh, maybe I don't, it's it's just got um, really vibrant. Uh, there's a vibrancy to it. That mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, I mean it's a very uh, gorgeous piece of wood that even plain looks stunning. Mm-hmm. And in one of those. Um Bizarre bits of kismet or whatever. As Tort was developing the bow, 
this dot this would the um the export slash import into Europe became much much higher because before that it was not as I understand it it wasn't legal for normal people to wear red that that was a color of royalty and of the church you know you think of the Pope in his red shoes and whatnot and so but that opened up at about the time that this was available and so going hand in hand maybe tort was down at the at the docks one day and said oh uh, what is this or, or something or maybe I'll I'll try some bows with that uh legend has it that it was him and his family that developed that it's possible someone else tried it and said hey this is working really good i think that's really mm. fascinating that mm. it's this one type of of wood that makes the best bows and mm. it, you should come to people i hope you'll bring that on i'll bring a lot of wood i'll bring a lot of bow not not so many finished bows but i'll be bringing a lot of bows that are sort of in in this form here i'm showing to paula what a bow might look like after i've cut it out of a board which is a um sort of a square uh a long piece that's about a half inch by a half inch and maybe three feet long with a big block at the end where the head of the bow is going the to notch right the uh the connection point yeah just the head is what it's called the head okay uh, yeah. and so this you can still feel that heft that yeah. um it doesn't mm -hmm. lose even though it's quite thin it doesn't lose that um uh dense right. density mm -hmm. which is is a really interesting quality and, and and i'll bring a whole bunch of these for people to see and in particular you see where that piece of blue tape is down there right towards the opposite end of where the the head is hold hold it like i'm holding it okay so we're holding the, it the um, head is upward i'm holding it right at that tape vertical so so we're like a flag we're holding it uh -huh. and then hit the head like that okay with so my hand hold your hold down here with just two fingers so i'm putting my fingers on the tape which uh -huh. is about six inches maybe from five inches from the end and then hit that can you feel that inherent <gasps> vibration there's in vibration uh -huh. the wood uh -huh. And it goes all the way Oops. through. Mm -hmm. It's no. it's like a uh, like a mallet or something, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. And different pieces of wood have different vibrations inherent in them. Can Are these from different uh, trees? Different uh, two by fours, if you will. <laughs> I I'm, they were I'm sure they were from different trees. This uh -huh. one is heavier. Uh -huh. And you might even have you'll have variation on one side of the tree to the other. I'll have if I cut two sticks out of a, of one board. There's often variation of a huge variation of density sometimes, and also you can have a variation in what vibration you're feeling through that. That was that's really cool, folks. Mm. So you got to go just to feel that. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, it's just and, and and a great thing would be to try this with a different type of wood, cut, mm. cut the same shape out of, you know, just a, a maple or you know, mm. uh, you know any other tree that we might find here mm -hmm. i don't know that you would find that because they're softer they they absorb more they mm -hmm. would not i don't think they would carry that through mm -hmm. that you would feel that all the way down in your fingers you know how how long what's the distance here maybe 18 inches i don't what is some i'm terrible at, at estimating but that's really mm -hmm. i i can see why that is the wood that uh -huh. gets used and then that inherent internal vibration you can use to your advantage in terms of sometimes a musician will come to me and say, oh, I, um, my violin, it's really kind of piercing in the upper register. Is there something you can do for me? And I'll choose a piece of wood that's inherent vibration is a much lower vibration. Whereas someone might say, I will ask people, because 
What I mainly do is I work individually with musicians and make a bow specifically for them. So I'll say, where, what is kind of lacking in your instrument, or what other bows do you have, and what what would you, what qualities would you like the bow I make you to have that the other ones aren't having? And so I'll be I'll be using that as one of the raw materials to say this is going to be the bow for you. And that I find fascinating because that's part of your process is actually observing the player. Uh, with the instrument and then uh, with different bows. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how how easy it is for the musician to find the vocabulary to explain what they think they want and then how are you doing to kind of uh, guide them through the process of, of, you know, tuning in, if you will, (laughs) listening to what they're saying and making sure that you're, you're understanding what their goal is. That's a huge part of what I do and what people need to do at this level is just be talking to musicians because there's no defined terms for almost anything on a bow in terms of how it feels and how it sounds. And so the same word will be different to someone else uh, or quite often or you'll start talking and then you need to define with people, okay, you just said the word strong. Tell me what you mean by strong. You yeah, because that could be a, a mm-hmm. number of different things that they're thinking. Uh, right. And uh, you just, um, I'm trying to think of another term that gets thrown around that I re- when I hear it, I really think, that when I hear it, I really think, okay, what, um, what uh, let's think of a word, sorry. Um, well, people talk about how they, for some people, strength means like when they hold the bow, they go, ah, how, how far can I push into this? Some people think of strength as, when I push into this, does it get immediately softer, or once I start pushing in, is that when the resistance happens? There's this internal resistance that's different than when you feel. Someone might say things like, oh, I really want the bow to track well. And track well means different to different musicians. I'm not even sure what that <laughs> means in any terms. I haven't uh, played a string instrument, so that's mm-hmm. fascinating. When they say track well, tell me what they're, they're th- you know, thinking of. Um, you know, one thing that can be thought of when someone says track well is just simply that as the bow is going from one end to the other, as they're pulling it, do they, um, is this bow going to be a little bit bouncy here? Mm. Is this bow going to do, I mean, there's another term that gets talked about a lot is, uh, I want to feel it sink into the string. And so, but that means different things to a couple different people. So there's a whole bunch of vocabulary that... I need, and, I, and I'm not a particularly good violinist, so I've had to uh, acquire that and really pull that out of people. I think that's really fascinating. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Art Zaney, Radio for the Imagination. Today, I'm here with Matt Wheeling. We're talking about his bow-making story, and I'm so excited. I love learning these things, and this is something I've wanted to learn about for a long time. And he has a capstone event on Sunday, the 22nd of May, 2022, from 4 to 6. That's at the Cannon Valley Makers at 300 Railway Street in Dundas. And that brings us to, you're going to have a guest with you, mm-hmm. Ralph Haas, and I think he'll be a really fascinating part of the, the presentation. Tell us what Ralph is going to be uh, sharing with, with the audience. I've known Ralph for a while. Ralph has uh, connections to Northfield in that his grandfather was uh, a violinist. His grandfather passed away just uh, in the last year or so. And so Rolf would be down quite a bit, and I might be doing maintenance on one of his bows or something. He now lives in New York. He comes in and is a guest artist with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra from time to time. 
so he's going to come down for this. He's a really well-rounded violinist. And when I say well-rounded, people might think, oh, he can play Mozart and Beethoven and sort of <laughs> Tchaikovsky. But uh, he actually, he's done some really cool hip-hop violin, which when I first heard someone describing it, I thought, oh, God, these things are always horrible. And it, it was really, really good. In fact, where I heard him do that was on the Sunday Morning Musician program on KYMN. And I thought, wow, I'd never known this about this person. So he's going to be coming down after a concert, and we were talking about how it's a triangle between violin, bow, and and uh, musician. And he'll be doing some demonstrations of just playing even very simple things on one bow so that people can really hear it, and then switching immediately to another bow. And that's when you can really hear what goes on. I'll have, quite often there'll be parents coming in, they might have a, you know, their their student might be between 14 and 18, 20 and I'll say, well, come in, we'll do some things, and you'll hear the difference. And the parents always say, I, I, don't, I won't hear the difference. They always hear the difference. So, I mean, I shouldn't say always. It's the rare parent that, you know, one out of ten might just say, oh, whatever. <laughs> well, because so. I suppose most people, when they're given an instrument to begin to play with, they have no, nobody takes into account any individuality because nobody knows who they, you know, who they are and what, mm. Uh, how long they're going to be interested in it. So everybody kind of starts on the same basic instrument, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and probably that's good, right? You wouldn't necessarily want to hand uh, treasure to, to an eight-year-old and have them start playing. But, you know, I think if, you know, you are building that relationship with music, and it's because I guess maybe the other component that we didn't think in our triangle is the music that you're playing too. That um, you know, you you want to understand that too, and bring that through, and make that triangle work to 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 pass uh, on the sounds, and you know, the better your your uh, materials, and and the better your the sound you can make. Well, there's that, and then it, there are. I mean, and when we think about oh, there's different types of music, even within classical orchestral and chamber music, there's huge divisions. You know, if you think of how different. Beethoven is from something, you know, so Beethoven, I, I don't remember exactly when he died, but he was working at the time of Napoleon, you know, because mm -hmm. he, he dedicated some stuff to Napoleon. But if you go 50 years later and get more into Brahms and things like that, it's very drastically different music. Or if you have someone who's not playing in an orchestra, but is playing in a quartet, their needs are going to be very, very different than an orchestral person. So do a lot of string musicians have multiple bows? They should. I didn't even think about that. Mm -hmm. and so that will, so even the, the music may change the bow that they want to use? Definitely. Oh, mm -hmm. see, now oh. this is something I, I, because you can't tell as an audience member, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you don't see them next to each other. They you generally use one for each concert, or maybe they go back behind the, the curtain and get the neck, you know, bring it out, mm -hmm. and you can't see. So that's oh. something really interesting. I wish mm -hmm. they would tell us more about their bows when they're on stage. Because mm -hmm. yeah. I, I imagine they become a part of, uh, you know, really, they build a relationship with it. We're the poor cousin. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're the poor cousin who's way more interesting. Exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I think, let's talk about the parts of the bow. Because they're, in, in making one, there's, you know, obviously the wood, which is, you know, the critical first step. And that that alone takes a long time to come to the place where it can be made into a, a bow. I think I heard you say that, that it's 
you cure it for almost five years before you even consider using it. Yeah, I'll, I will buy a board. Well, you can't buy boards anymore, but I would take them and cut them from the the board to that blank, which was the long uh, sort of half inch by half inch square that's about three feet long. And I'd like to sit, I'd let those sit at least five years because coming out of the board, they need to become what they want to become. They're going to twist some and... All the work is so precise. If you don't let that wait, in a few years, if it twists, you've got a completely different animal. And, and that is not what a player wants. No. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, and so uh, so there is. it's a long process, yeah. And yeah. so then uh, what are the other parts that make up the bow that uh, are, uh, you know, a part of, of this process of taking a board into... Really, I mean, if you look at the shape of a bow, everybody should go look it up. It's it's really quite gorgeous, the, the curves and the, you know, just just the, the shape. And then you've got the, the hairs, but I'm sure that there's a lot more that goes goes with the attachment points. And, oh, we have a bow. I don't think That's I've a, ever actually touched a bow. Uh, try not to bang it on the mic stand. <laughs> um, uh so I've handed I've handed uh, Paula a cello bow. I have a cello bow in my hand as well. Um, and Paula, you're the radio person. Maybe you should be describing what's what you're holding. Ooh, this hand. is always tricky, um, and, and I do not know the terminology. But what what used to be the block at the end has now um, has two curves. Like one is the top of an S, and the other is. Uh, a U on the other side. That's how I would describe mm-hmm. it. I'm sure there's other mm-hmm. words for it, but it's quite elegant. And uh, there's a metal piece that I think that's metal. That no? would on that bow that is tusk from mammoth, like the woolly mammoth. Yeah, for mm-hmm. real. Yeah, I mean, typically we would have used elephant ivory, but for good reason, no one uses that anymore. And actually, we're getting away from even using mammoth because the environmental processes of people farming, basically, mammoth is pretty disgusting. Oh, I had no idea mm-hmm. that that was even a part. So it's, it's I'm, I'm touching woolly mammoth. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, that's a, a fascinating thing. That, and mm-hmm. that is not something that can be replaced with plastic, I imagine. Well, we're, we're working on different plastics. If you look at that, it comes to this very sharp right angle, if you look at it from this. And that's, it's difficult to find a plastic that's going to uh, be able to work in that angle without breaking. And it's also very, very thin here. You want something that's reasonably pretty. If you have something that's straight out white, it's not very pretty. Um, so there's a whole lot of things going on there. And then, uh, understandably and thankfully, you you can't travel through international lines with elephant ivory. Yeah, I and, I did read that uh, that that you have to make for for folks that travel internationally some special bows. Right, and so. You don't want your replacement to look too much like ivory because then uh, you get in a situation with a customs border sort of person. where you Who is probably not well educated yeah. in materials. Well, I mean, there's that. It's incredible how many different fields that a border agent is supposed to know what he's doing on. And you just can't expect a person to be able to do that. You know, so if you're so, interested, folks should look at his website. There is a section about travel bows that you mm-hmm. make, which I found fascinating. That says a lot about our world and uh, just I, some of the things that musicians go through as they travel. 
I'm going to quiz you. What is the name of that? What is the website? Well, the website, you can go to finebows.com. There you go. Well F-I-N-E-B-O-W-S.com or mattwheeling.com. Uh, yeah, but that's ne- trickier because of the spelling. Yeah, you'll never get it. <laughs> and I, well, I, I still want to continue down the bow because uh-huh. not only at, at this end, but the, the curve on this is more than I expected mm-hmm. in, in the wood. Um, and it's coming, it's the gap between the hairs and the uh, wood is larger at the end, closer in the middle, and then is larger again at the other end. That's right. It's like a dinosaur. Like a dinosaur. (laughs) (laughs) How how is it like a dinosaur? It's a Monty Python reference. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) It it went right over my head. Uh (laughs) My Uh husband will be really sad. He's a fan, so Uh I'm in trouble. (laughs) And uh, so this, um, the, the round, how do you get the, it's, although it's not perfectly round, it's a little mm-hmm. flatter on the top. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually, the bottom. Bottom, you've, okay. You've kind of got it upside down. I've got as it upside down. See, I, I don't, play, they'd be they're playing like this that. way, right, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. And um, yeah, and so, I mean, I am just, I'm taking those planes that we talked about that I had to make, and I am starting out with what looks like a half inch by half inch square. I'm taking some wood off the corners, I'm finally going to make it down to where I have an octagon. And because when it's an octagon, you're able to control uh, what you're able to control the shape much better. You're able to see it and feel it. There's a lot of work in bows where you're starting with a square, taking off corners to get to an octagon, taking corners off that to get to a 16 shape, 16 sided object and then rounding. Well, I suppose because there's no going back, right? When Once you remove that piece, if you mm-hmm. do too much, yeah. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. You've, you've taken, and that it's a beautiful feel. And is that something that's standard, or is, can people customize even even the thickness of that? And Or is that most, their hands are not usually on that part? They being the musicians, yes. they being other bow makers, they can, they can tell me what they want, and I will make it happen. I will try to make it happen. Um, they they are not allowed to tell me. <laughs> you know, I think you've made it a little too thin here. Oh. Uh, yeah, and um, okay, no soup for you. <laughs> <laughs> because you are working not only with, with the wood, but but the sound that they want, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the feel that right. they want. And that takes mm-hmm. knowing the wood. And I would mm-hmm. imagine each piece of wood kind of has its own story yeah. to tell you. Here's that. When I say no soup for you, I mean, I'm exaggerating there. What I mainly have to do is explain to people, okay, you played one bow one time, and it seems like that was a little bit like this. Here's the reasons why I don't think that's going to be a good thing to do in this particular bow. Mm-hmm. And that comes from your years of experience and mm-hmm. working with musicians. And now on the end, where, where, uh, how do I describe this? Sort of the fishing pole handle and that's a terrible description Uh (laughs) um there's beautiful um wires is that is it wire wrapped around that's three strands of gold over a strand of silk oh that's why it has that smooth Mm -hmm. and that is is that decor or function uh well it's it's functional decor um (laughs) because a a musician's going to hold the bow like this and so where their where their hand is at, it's going to be uh, that would be exposed to the person's sweat and other hand chemicals, and so that's there to protect the bow over time. That's a 
sort of replaceable part. Ah, so you mm-hmm. can get that repaired or yeah. or changed out easily. Uh, yeah. That's something. And there's also like a wrapping which feels like leather. Often it is leather. On these particular bows, it's a lizard. Oh. But but typically one uses leather. I see. Again, wow, this is a multi-creature, multi-world yeah. piece of, piece of uh, it's not even equipment, art. It's, it's, but it's both. Yeah, it's functional art. Exactly. And then on the, uh, the side where, uh, is this the frog? That's the frog. There you go. I heard that, and I was so excited because I think that's such a wonderful name. And there's also beautiful inlaid, uh, looks like a shell or a, a, a is there a, a reason that, that that is that material? That is shell. That's a little bit for decor, and but I mean also there's a purpose because I'm I'm now I'm grabbing a different bow for Paula to see, where the shell is. That's actually something. Uh, oh, he's <laughs> tugging at the at the strings. Well, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm tugging at that little piece of gold. In order to take it off like that. Okay. You, you don't do this. I'm not going to. No. Uh huh. And then that piece of shell slides out as well. In and order, the, and that's how you change the hair. There's something involved in that. So, so that's, that's a, okay. Uh, so it's keeping the ends of the hair down, but you need something really thin, I would imagine. Uh, it's more complex than we want to talk about all on the right. radio. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. It's it's fascinating to to be able to see all the different parts. And now here on the end too mm-hmm. is a knob. Uh-huh. And is that does that twist or is that just? So you were talking about how close the hair was to the stick. What you're going to do with this is... So hold... I, I don't hold think it. I want to. Okay, good. So if I take this... <laughs> I'd, I'd rather you didn't. Yeah, this. exactly. So if I take this, by twisting that, can you see that the distance between the hair and the wood is getting it larger? It is. There's a different so that's, spacing. That's tightening up the hair. So so there is an adjustment that you can uh, make. And we have can't to make. Have to make. Uh-huh. And that, that is... Is that part of tuning or is that part of sound or, or uh, quali- you know, the quality of the sound? You or don't. just d- different uh, preferences for pressure that a, a violinist or cellist might feel? You don't want your bow to stay up at tension all the time when you're not playing it, is the first thing. And so that's, that's for one thing, to be able to relieve the tension. Otherwise, that arc that we've put into the bow, you're going to lose that. Uh, but then how tight you have the bow changes how the playing characteristics are very much so Um, that's something each musician has to to work to get the right Mm -hmm. for that bow for that Mm -hmm. instrument for that day hey it's a humid day it's going to need to have i'm going to need to do this a little bit farther than i typically would because the hair is going to feel different Wow, this is fascinating. Mm. I'm so excited to learn all of this and, and, and such a thrill to be able to hold a, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous bow. We have to talk about the hair because mm-hmm. is this really horse hair? Oh, yes. It mm. is really horse hair. And mm. I'm so fascinated by this because I thought that I used to think that was a myth, but it's truly. Yeah. <laughs> and is it something that uh, this is going to sound like a really odd question, but. Are is it like a horse getting a haircut? And you know, there's certain horses that have hair that makes the best uh, for string instruments. Are you sure you want to know? <laughs> I don't know. You you're the, you have to tell me. You can it, tell me what what I, what we should know. It's a byproduct of rendering. Oh. So, um, you know, there's there's different places in the world where horses are much more of a staple meat, and so they will. 
take the tails and manes and use that for other products, uh, wigs, paintbrushes, other things. And in this case, when they've got something that's 34 inches long and white and feeling good, it'll get sold for this pur- purpose. Oh, and so it comes to you in like a ponytail or something. I'm curious. I've, I, you know, I've certainly been around a horse, and we have a ponytail exactly like I imagined it would be. Well, it's not really. Well, first of all, I'm sorry that this is so ragged. Um, this is my, my demo one. When sure. They, when they come to me, they're really, really beautiful. Uh, and they're, um, to call it a ponytail isn't exactly appropriate because I'm sure it takes, to do what would be the mass of one tail of a pony, I'm sure it would take a thousand ponies to be of the quality that I buy. Mm. The quality of hair that I buy is is very very high. So I'm paying, I think about four hundred dollars for a pound of this. So it's a very expensive piece. Mm-hmm. And do these so so do they last for a long time when when they're on the bow? You, I mean, we've seen players play and they've you know uh, occasionally you'll see something. Mm-hmm you know, like a split hair. <laughs> well, but between breakage and just sort of wearing out, if you were a professional orchestral player and depending on your uh, pickiness and how you viewed your job and things like that, you would probably be getting your bow changed, the hair in your bow changed maybe every three, four months, certainly once a year. I mean, for, for, for serious amateur players, you're saying, you know, really you should be doing this annually. So it's that's more frequently than I thought it would be, and mm-hmm. it's um, a pretty spectacular feel when you have a whole line of that mm-hmm. on you know on a bow, and it's uh, it, it it I don't know how to describe it because it's not coarse, but it's kind of silky, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's very uniform, which is also I expect a really important detail. It's an important detail. And it's not easy to do well. Hmm. And I can tell uh, this. I mean, it just—it's—it's mm-hmm. it's a glorious um, work, and it's Thank really you. such a thrill to be able to hold this. I assume is one that you made. It I guess is. I didn't even ask. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, and it is just a, a, a beautiful work of art. That, and I hope that when people are listening out there, that when they are going go to a concert, that they start looking more at the bow and thinking mm-hmm. about what went into that bow and. You know the uh, how that is is that triangle that we talked about that it, it's essential. Mm-hmm. And so, do you find that you help players build a better relationship with you know you know like they might see their distru- instrument different or their capabilities different if they get the bow that you know produces the sound or or the way they feel when they play. It depends on the person because some people are coming to me and their understanding of bows is quite developed. You know, at this point, the people who are sort of thinking about things within my price point usually know what they're doing, or to some extent. But there is always education going on in terms of, uh, um, you know, even just trying a few different bows. Bows are a real mysterious sort of thing. There's nothing, there's almost nothing quantifiable on a bow. And we're a society that likes to be able to quantify stuff. The only thing you can quantify on a bow, or is typically quantified, is how much it weighs. And so... But that for, hardly tells the story, right? <laughs> it, it really doesn't. But, you know, it's the one number that people can hold on to. And so a lot of people do hold on to that number, unfortunately. 
Mm. And most most uh, violin shops, the people working in the violin shops, um, aren't ve- aren't very interested in bows. They're still in that mode of oh, the instrument's the most important thing. So you'll get your instrument. They're really working with you a lot. And a few years later, you're thinking, okay, it's ready for me to get a bow now. And you go to the same shop, and they'll say, uh, here's a bunch of bows. Just try one until one works well for you. Which is a little bit like if you were trying to buy a pair of pants, and they said, there's a there's a pile of pants over there. <laughs> you know, we, we don't really know how big your butt is or how tall you are, but you can just go try on all the pants until one feels right to you. They do say that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. But, I mean, we all have a general idea of what our waistline is and our inseam and stuff. Right, exactly. Right. If they have a pile of just random sizes, yep, you would not would. want to do that. Uh-huh, yeah. And so that's that's part of, I think, what you're trying to, to educate people and teach people about. And mm. I'm fascinated. This is a story I've wanted to tell, and I'm I'm just so thrilled that we could spend this time. And I want to encourage people to come and, and hang out with you. And um, this, this is a uh, capstone event, so you should tell us in, a, a little bit about the grant work that, sh- that you were doing. Uh, this is a result of a Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council capstone event, which we are very uh, pleased is a, a part of the legislative uh, appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, which is an extraordinary thing here in Minnesota. It, mm-hmm. is, it is phenomenal that we... Um, so you sh- if you don't know about that, let's let's look that up. Well, maybe we'll talk about that someday. But tell me about your specific grant that you're uh, presenting this capstone event for. So the way that I was taught to make bows was an absolutely entirely by hand, which a number of people do make bows like that. And I wrote, uh, I, there's a couple machines I use now on very specific things. And I wanted to explore the possibility of using machines a little more. What I specifically wanted to explore was having one, the little part, the three or four steps that I use a machine for. I wanted to have one, I wanted to have one machine for each of those steps. And so the Southeast Minnesota Arts Council allowed me to buy multiple lathes so I wasn't having to reset up my lathe every time I wanted to work on this or this or that, mm-hmm. uh, which has been really very, very good. Um, and that guitar maker I mentioned earlier is someone who sort of pioneered that in the in the world of guitar making. Instead of having one, um, you, you're losing all the time in setup, you're making a mistake in setup, of that tool and things like that. And so it's really been nice to have those additional tools in my life. And that is extraordinary. You know, and one thing we didn't talk about because I just, we got, I got carried away. Mm -hmm. Holding a bow really like brought something out in me that Ah. I hadn't thought of before Uh is, uh, you know, just, just the reputation, the international reputation that you have and the uh, awards that you've won are spectacular. I want people to know a little bit about some of the, uh, the, the, ways that you've placed in these competitions which are just it's extraordinary tell us a little bit about some of these um competitions it would be non-minnesotan of me to talk about them (laughs) so so we folks can find out the details at your website yeah i mean there's there are various competitions in bow making it's it's a little bit like when you're in the cheese aisle or the beer aisle and it's oh and it won this prize here you know which you've never really heard of before and but you think well it won a prize it must be good so well, I think it's pretty extraordinary that we have you here in Northfield and that you are here and and you know 
the musicians of the world know about your work. Well, and, there's that. And then, you know, we also have a very good violin maker in town, David Folland, who's won a number of the similar medals that I've won. And he's it's great. In fact, I am here, you know, uh, knowing that David was here was part of the draw of, of moving here in 2002. Well, we're mm-hmm. very lucky, and mm-hmm. I can't wait for folks to learn more. I could probably talk to you for another hour, but mm-hmm. our hour is up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me on and helping me get the word out about it. And all the work. I love this show. I love this radio station. I think you do a great job. Thank I, you. I love the the play preview that you had last week, which my son was involved. The play was fantastic last night, by the way. It's on at Arcadia tonight at 730. And the Complete Works of Shakespeare. Abridged. abridged. <laughs> so that's on tonight at, uh, well... 7.30. Yep. Uh, Friday night and Saturday night. So if you're listening to the repeat broadcast, it's still applicable. Oh, thank you. for. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. That's a wonderful thing. Folks, you've been listening to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. I'm just thrilled that we were able to have this time together. I hope that you always take the time to add some Art Zany into your life. And of course, in the meantime, till next time, enjoy your imagination. The team at Whit Brothers Auto Care would like to thank Northfield and the surrounding communities for naming them 2022's Best Auto Repair Shop. Stop down to 701 Division Street and visit the staff at Whit Brothers, nominated as the best mechanics in southern Minnesota, to make sure your vehicle is ready for all of your summer travel plans. Visit Whit Brothers in downtown Northfield to make sure you get the best service for all of your automotive, maintenance, and repair needs. The voters have spoken, and when you need the best of the best, Whit Brothers is here for you. I am Rob Shanilak, owner of By All Means Graphics, your hometown print shop in the heart of downtown Northfield. We've been in business for more than 35 years, and time and again, we hear how truly valued our services are to local businesses, nonprofits, groups, organizations, and individuals like you. From business cards to banners, from concept to completion, we're here to help. So stop in to 17 Bridge Square right next to the Chamber office or call 507-663-7937. By all means, graphics.